Guardian correspondent Rory Carroll has survived kidnap in Iraq and risked his life, reporting from war zones all over the world. Now his career has come full circle and he's covering his home turf in Ireland. In his new book, Killing Thatcher, he tells the story of the infamous Brighton bomb that came close to killing the Iron Lady. What an interesting subject to write about. Now, you and I have just been having a chat, but do you want to explain in your own words why it is that you chose this subject? I stumbled into it um, as part of my day job for The Guardian. I'm always looking for stories uh, about Ireland, Northern Ireland. And a few years ago, the, the, the man convicted of the bombing, Peter, um, uh, Patrick McGee, um, it did a memoir. And I interviewed him about the memoir. Now, it was fascinating about why he joined the IRA, his childhood, but it veiled the actual Brighton operation, to use IRA terminology. But it did get me researching the topic. And initially, I assumed, well, we all know what happened. It's a familiar story, right? But actually, it was anything but. I mean, once I started getting into the, the research of, you know, how the IRA, why they went after Thatcher, how they did the plot, and how they came so close to killing her, and then the police hunt for the, for the bombers. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, and it had been largely untold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just dived into this as a, as a, as a story because I just feel like in Britain, the, the page turned very quickly on what was a, an epochal event. Yeah. So how close did they come to killing Thatcher? Extremely close. And I think a lot of people forget this because it was a time bomb that was planted in the Grand Hotel three weeks before the Tory party conference in 1984. And it obliterated, it went off at just before three o'clock in the morning, and it obliterated ad, um, adjacent rooms. But really, the, the kind of the devilish um, inspiration of the bomb was to turn the hotel itself into the weapon. Because the, the force of the explosion went upwards, it shattered the roof, mm. and thereby it toppled a five-ton um, chunk of, uh, of a chimney stack, which then tumbled down into the heart of the hotel. Now, the IRA... And did they do that by design? Yes. Well, the IRA told me, uh, one of the, the planners of the, uh, of the bombing, that they had sent a construction engineer in advance. They've been planning this for years. I mean, this was the single most audacious attack in the IRA's history. Wow. And they had planned it for years. They had surveilled successive Tory party conferences. They were lining up all their ducks in a row. Um, and they had studied the architecture of the ground. And so they had a pretty good idea that if this chimney stack, five tons of masonry could then start slicing through the hotel like a, a homicidal guillotine, just taking out one floor after another. Now that was the weapon that Gosh. was to kill Margaret Thatcher. It kind of like, sounds almost like Twin Towerish, doesn't it? So they, it killed five people. I imagine they thought it would probably kill more. But Patrick McGee, he only served, what, 14 years as part of the Good Friday Agreement. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And he had been sentenced to 35 years minimum, uh, eight life sentences. And the judge, you know, really clearly hoped that he would kind of really never leave prison again. Um, and yet in one of the multiple ironies of this whole story, uh, he was released under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement in 1999 after serving 14 years. And I say that's ironic because in a way, Margaret Thatcher's survival, she then went on to sign the Anglo-Irish Agreement a year later, which in many ways paved the Good Friday Agreement and which um, paved the release of the man who came so close to killing her. So, you know, there's all these threads in the story that, you know, of, of, of different lives, the way they intersected in different ways. And so the, really what I want to do in the book is thread them all together. 
And she also, she, to Margaret Thatcher, she actually decided after the bomb, didn't she, it was three o'clock in the morning, she decided that conference would go on and continue. And despite the, the people who died and those who had just been completely disrupted, do you think she did the right thing? What, what, I mean, I can't imagine myself being in that situation. situation. I've been the grand and the chaos and the disruption and the upheaval, but she was determined that the conference would continue. Her response was extraordinary because, I mean, she was in a de facto war zone and uh, her composure um, was remarkable. Everybody commented upon it, the, the fire crews who, 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 who escorted her out. And she, within an hour, um, when she was finally taken away from the hotel, the hotel itself was still a, kind of a, a crumbling, smoking ruin, she told uh, the senior police and her own officials, the conference will go on. They were horrified. They had assumed that they wanted to, to, to shut her back to Downing Street as yeah. fast as possible, do a sort of lockdown. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. And the conference is going ahead. And the convention center was right beside the hotel. And, and so they, they couldn't believe it. And she, for her, it wasn't enough that she survived. For her, she wanted to show the IRA that they had failed even to disrupt the conference. Yeah. And that was, in, in many ways, and, so, and sure enough, the conference went ahead on time, and she gave a speech that afternoon, which was a, a bravura performance of, of defiance, of composure, um, albeit her audience was largely shell-shocked. But yeah. it, was, it was really, I think they it was her finest hour. Can I ask you, was there, because you know, I grew up with the IRA bombings taking place. You know, part of my life was the dis daily disruption of a bomb warning. Was there a warning for the bomb? for that particular bomb? Absolutely not, no, in this not. case. That's unusual because there was always a warning, wasn't there? Well, it depended on the targets and the circumstances. I mean, in this case, yes, they planted a bomb in a hotel filled with sleeping civilians, hundreds of people. Um, but the target for the, from the IRA's point of view was so precious. This is a one-off chance that they had to take out a sitting prime minister and hopefully from their point of view, wipe out half the government. Yeah. And therefore, a warning would have sabotaged that. So even though, you know, there were, the IRA Army Council had thought about warning their own volunteers to say, hey, everybody lie low. We've got, you know, something big is about to happen um, in anticipation of a huge British response, a security response, but they didn't. The reason being the IRA was so infiltrated by informers, they didn't want to give any chance of the British security forces having a heads sure, up. Sure, sure. So, you know, one thing I found interesting, I... I first stood for election in 2001, and I did hear some conservative activists talking about their own experience. They'd been at that, that conference, um, and Sir Keith Joseph, who they'd found, and I met two women who'd actually run a kind of room in the hotel throughout the night serving people tea and, and what have you. But when I got to Westminster in 2005, that year there were a lot of the old guard left behind who'd been there. I've never heard, despite the fact that key members of the government did die, and you know, Norman Tebbit's wife famously very injured, that never have I heard one single MP in my party in Westminster talk about it. And I find that extraordinary. You know, having just glanced through, I find it such a, a huge, enormous event to have taken part in the Conservative Party history that actually nobody talks about it. I find that equally extraordinary. In some ways, it's to the credit of the government. And, but first, when we think about it, I mean, the last time something like this had happened was 1605. It was the gunpowder plot, yeah. Guy Fawkes. Yeah. 
that bomb didn't even go off. No. This bomb did go off, killed five people, and we saw it I mean, on live TV. It was one of the first live TV events that we could see. We saw Norman Tebbit being dragged out in his pajamas. And it did, in some ways, change British history because, for example, Norman Tebbit had been, was one of you know, the designated heir, or many people considered that he would be the heir to Thatcher. Yeah. Um, in a way, his own personal injuries and then those of his wife, he then quit frontline politics yeah, to yeah. care for his wife. I mean, Brit Britain's politics and, and history changed, changed right there. Dramatically. I mean, and one, I think, reason that things changed so quick, uh, that the, the page turned so fast, was that they, Margaret Thatcher took the lead on this. She didn't want to give the IRA the satisfaction, you know, of, of seeing the British kind of dwelling on this. And so it was partly the stiff upper lip. Yeah. Um, and, that, you know, that, that's creditable, but, you know, but there is a sense that maybe the page has turned too fast. I mean, this was a 9-11 moment. So, you know, I was with Oliver Letwin. We did have a conference in, that, in the Grand Hotel in Brighton. I think it was in 2004. And I remember being on the staircase with Oliver Letwin. And he asked for a moment because he stood on the kind of like the mezzanine floor of the, of this, of the staircase as you went up. And he was looking up and he said to me, the last time I was here, there was a huge hole in that ceiling. So I think it had an impact on people. But, you know, in the true tradition of the Conservative Party, everyone just ploughed on and got on with, you know, the business of governing and the business of, of being the Conservative Party. But it's interesting because also Patrick McGee's made friends with the daughter of Anthony, was Anthony, Anthony Barry. Barry, who was our deputy chief whip. That's right. Who lost his life. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a key figure in the Thatcher government. And Patrick McGee has... has struck up a, a friendly relationship with, her, with his daughter? A remarkable friendship. Um, I mean, after his release in 1999, she, the daughter of Joe Berry, uh, reached out to him. She wanted to meet him. I mean, her father's killer, because she was, I think she's looking for, I mean, meaning in her father's murder, you know, mm -hmm. to, and to see if some, somehow she could find some good in it or reconciliation or something in curiosity. And they, 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 they struck up this remarkable bond. And they, they've appeared on stage together literally more than 100 times at conferences around the world where the context is reconciliation, bridge building, and so forth. Yeah. And it's, it is remarkable. Forgiveness. Yes, although it's, in the case of McGee, he's, he's sorry, not sorry. Uh, he, he, I think, and he's sincere, I think, in that, and for the suffering that he inflicted. Um, Yet he still defends the the Brighton bomb and the IRA campaign as legitimate acts of war. Mm. So it's not a clear cut That's sense of That's an interesting perspective, which actually will make this book all the more interesting. Rory, having met you and spoken to you, I can sense how well researched this book will be and how fascinating will it be. Can I give you a tip? Make sure it's for sale at the Conservative Party conference in October, because I think you'll do pretty well there. But I'd recommend, I'm going to read this, and I'd recommend anybody else to read it, because I'm sure it will be a fascinating read, particularly for those of us who are interested in both the history of the Conservative Party, but of the governments of the day as well, and what they've had to endure, and also Mrs Thatcher. So, Rory, it's been fantastic to meet you. Thank you very much to come on, uh, for coming on and talking about this.